pray together. God, you alone are holy. God, you are holy in your purity. You are sinless and nothing you do even hints at evil. You are perfectly righteous. But God, you are holy in that you have unique majesty. You are different from us, God. You alone. You are the one and the only holy God. We are so thankful, God, that we can study your word together this morning. We thank you for the Holy Spirit who illumines our minds to understand what you have taught us. And we thank you that you, a holy God, offered your holy son on the behalf of a sinful people. And that because of Jesus Christ, we can be one with you. We are so thankful for the time together and we pray that you would bless it in your name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I uh, bring greetings to you from countryside, that sacred motherland, many, many miles away. Um, I just want you to know we, we think of you often, we pray for you often, we are so thankful for this church. I don't think I've had a conversation about this church in the last very long time uh, that I haven't come out profoundly amazed at how good God has been to you and how good God has been through you to others. And so I'm very thankful for you. Um, I, I am thankful for your pastor. I love your pastor. Uh, he's been a friend and a mentor to me for over a decade now. And uh, he is, well, let me just say this. I hope you know how faithful of a man you have. I hope you do, and I hope you take seriously what the Bible says about loving and serving your leadership uh, so that he can lead you with joy, uh, because I know how much he loves you, and I know that he doesn't get to say that, so I'll say it on his behalf. Um, I'm thankful to be here. It's an honor uh, to fill the pulpit in his absence, and I uh, received a promise from him. Actually, I don't think he responded to me, but I demanded that uh, he bring me back venison at some point this fall. So we'll see uh, if that happens or not. But uh, you, uh, that was all for free, by the way, and we need to get into our message this morning. So you can turn to Obadiah in your Bibles. Obadiah, it's at the end of the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. Uh, turn to Obadiah chapter 1, uh, because if you're in Obadiah chapter 2, you have one of those nearly inspired versions, and uh, that's not going to help you too much. So make sure you're in Obadiah 1. It is the shortest book of the Old Testament, Obadiah, and uh, for, uh, 2nd and 3rd John are shorter in the New Testament. Jude's pretty close, uh, but it's a wonderful little book, and I, I think it'll be helpful for us this morning, so you can turn there. Well, I'm not sure if you're like me, uh, but I'm on social media some, and I read the news some, and, and I feel like over the last few weeks and months and years that the more I hear news of the outside world, I am often tempted to say, wow, this place is falling apart, or think, wow, this place is coming apart at the seams. It feels like evil people and wicked thinking and unbiblical ideologies are rampant in our world, and it feels like it's snowballing, doesn't it? It feels like they are proliferating and multiplying over and over and over again, and it feels like the world is out of control. I want us to study Obadiah this morning because it gives an answer to that thought. You see, we shouldn't be surprised at that. We shouldn't be surprised when the world is evil. And honestly, we shouldn't even be surprised when evil directly impacts the people of God. The scripture tells us to expect that, that the world will go from bad to worse. People will continue deceiving and being deceived. That those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We should expect that. But it still hurts, doesn't it? You see, when we come to study Obadiah this morning, Obadiah was written in a time that was so much worse than ours, to a people that were so much more distraught. And yet God is kind to them to bring a message of hope through the prophet Obadiah to tell them God will not let the guilty go unpunished. 
God will make it right in the end. He will restore his people. If we were to consider a theme for the book of Obadiah this morning, we would say this. God judges his enemies for the sake of his people. God judges his enemies for the sake of his people. God writes to remind his people that he is still in control, he is still just, and he will restore them at the right time. Now, I'm assuming most of you are not Old Testament scholars, experts in Obadiah, and I think a few of you are still looking for Obadiah in the table of contents, and that's okay. I'm going to give you a few more minutes to catch up because I need to give you some background. I need to give you some context to the book of Obadiah. You know that jumping into a new biblical book is, is confusing at best and dangerous at worst if you don't know what's going on. So let me tell you a story just for a couple minutes. Let me tell you how we got here. A long time ago, in a land far, far away, there lived two boys, <laughs> two brothers, two twin brothers, and their names were Esau and Jacob. Esau was so named because he came out hairy and red. Jacob was so named because he came out supplanting his brother, so he was named manipulator, trickster, supplanter, Jacob. Now these two boys, these twins, uh, they were the definition of sibling rivalry, even before they were born. Before they were born, these two boys wrestled so much in their mother's womb that she asked God what was going on. I don't know if any of you ladies have had a pregnancy like that, but that's exciting. She asked God, what is going on? It says the children struggled within her. So Rebecca inquires of the Lord, and the Lord responds with this very profound statement. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will be separated from your body. One will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Well, as they grew up, it became clear that Esau was a man's man. He, he liked to be outside. He liked to eat meat. He liked to hunt and kill things and mount them on the walls of his tent. That didn't work. Um, maybe. I don't know. Jacob, the scripture tells us, was a quiet man, and he liked to dwell in his tent. They didn't like each other very much. They didn't get along very well. And you remember the story in Genesis 25 where Esau comes back from hunting, and he's so hungry, and Jacob is cooking a red kind of stew. And Esau says, please give me some of that. And Jacob, being a trickster, sees that supply and demand is in his favor. He raises the price of a bowl of stew all the way to Esau's birthright. His authority is the firstborn, his double inheritance when their father would die. A steep price for a bowl of stew. But in Esau's foolishness, but ultimately in God's design, he fell for it. And he said, I'm going to die anyway. What use is my birthright? And so he sells his birthright for a bowl of red stew. And it says at the end of that passage that Esau despised his birthright. In other words, Esau lived with a chip on his shoulder till the day he died. He never forgot that incident. He bore a grudge against Jacob, not only for that incident, but also when their father was on his deathbed, Jacob again manipulated and tricked and he stole Esau's blessing. And so because of a lifetime of animosity and these two particular offenses, Esau tells himself, the days of mourning for my father are near, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. Jacob, you remember, is sent to another land uh, by the wisdom of his mother for his safety. He moves away. And Esau, uh, Genesis 36, 8 tells us that Esau lived in the hill country of Seir. On a map, it's, uh, it's right to the south of the Dead Sea, and uh, a little strip that will show up there on uh, south of Moab, a little mountainous region about 70 to 100 miles long. So Jacob moves away. Esau moves down to Seir, which is now a place of red people, like Esau, red rocks. And they were banished there because of an incident of red stew. And so it became to be known as Edom, red you remember that Jacob had his name changed also because Jacob moved away and there was a time when he encountered the Lord. The Lord injured him and gave him a new name after wrestling all night. You remember what his name was? Jacob became Israel, the one who strives with God, the one who contends, the one who wrestles with God. So now we have two nations. We have a nation named after an incident of red stew, and we have a nation named after someone who contends with God. And it doesn't feel like this is going very well, does it? 
These two nations would live in some measure of antagonism for hundreds of years. Even when uh, Israel was taken into Egypt and brought back out of the Exodus, they would try to pass through Edom, and Edom would refuse them passage because of a family feud from hundreds of years before. For hundreds of years, they fought each other, they got ready to fight each other, or they finished fighting each other. That was the relationship. There was a time during King David's reign where he conquered them, but during the time of King Jehoram, uh, Edom set up an independent monarchy and rebelled against Israel and gave themselves a king. Edom is the most prophesied nation in the Old Testament scriptures. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, and Malachi all have specific oracles against this people. If you're a fan of superhero movies, Edom is the original villain. Edom against Israel. And that brings us up to the time of Obadiah. You remember your Israel history that the northern kingdom uh, was taken away by Assyria in 722 BC. And a few hundred years later in 586 and the years prior starting in 605, Babylon came in to besiege Jerusalem. And you remember in 586 they completely destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took captives all of the able-bodied people where we have Daniel and his friends going to Babylon, remember. Psalm 137.7 gives us a very interesting bit of information about when Babylon destroyed Jerusalem. It says this, Remember, O Lord, against the sons of Edom the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it to its very foundation. You see, what happened was, when Babylon came in, besieged Judah, and destroyed Jerusalem, Edom watched. And they cheered on and they rooted for God's enemies in their attacks on God's people. Edom, the one who was supposed to serve their brother, rather rebelled and joined their enemies. And so Obadiah writes a letter as an open letter to Edom. It's a letter that's designed to pronounce judgment on Edom, but to give hope to the people of God in the midst of an awful situation. Now, we don't know who Obadiah is. There's 13 Obadiahs in the Old Testament, and none of them seem to overlap. So we don't actually know a whole lot about this man, except that he was chosen to give this message of hope to God's people. Now, you can understand, I know the numbers don't quite match, but you can imagine if Washington, D.C. just simply ceased to exist, and every able-bodied person in our nation was put on ships for China or Russia or whatever, you can imagine how devastating that would feel. And to these people who are the chosen people of God, their nation has been just devastated. And they wonder, if our God is God, what happened? And so Obadiah writes to remind them, God will not let the guilty go unpunished and his true justice will come at the right time. But that's the key, isn't it? It's at the right time. Obadiah reminds us to be patient. <laughs> Obadiah reminds us to be patient because the kingdom is not fully realized yet. The kingdom will come and the kingdom will be the Lord's, but we have to be patient. In Obadiah, we'll see four realities of God's judgment. Four realities of God's judgment. And, and we're going to talk about judgment a lot this morning, and I want us to be careful how we think. You see, because in our story today, uh, judgment is going to be very tangible. Let's say that. Bigger, scarier guys with bigger, scarier weapons are going to come and destroy people. But I don't want you to think that just because your life is not being harassed by these kinds of judgments, that God is okay with everything you're doing and that you're living a righteous life. God often allows the wicked to enjoy their sin for a time and bring them to their wicked end later. And so I would like to encourage you to be honest with yourself as we study Obadiah together. Are you one who is God's enemy and therefore will come under God's judgment? Or are you one of God's people who will enjoy God's blessing at the right time? Let's read Obadiah together and then we'll study uh, through some, some different observations here. 21 verses. I, I think we'll make it through. Here we go. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord, and an envoy has been sent among the nations, saying, Arise and let us go against her for battle. 
Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You are greatly despised. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock, in the loftiness of your dwelling place, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to earth? Though you build high like the eagle, though you set your nest among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares Yahweh. If thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. Would they not steal only until they had enough? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave some gleanings? Oh, how Esau will be ransacked and his hidden treasures searched out. All the men allied with you will send you forth to the border. The men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. They who eat your bread will set an ambush for you. There's no understanding in him. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountains of Esau? Then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Because of violence to your brother Jacob, you will be covered with shame. You will be cut off forever on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were as one of them. Do not gloat over your brother's day, the day of his misfortune. And do not rejoice over the sons of Judah in the day of their destruction. Yes, do not boast in the day of their distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their disaster. Yes, you do not gloat over their calamity in the day of their disaster. And do not loot their wealth in the day of their disaster. Do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. And do not imprison their survivors in the day of their distress. For the day of the Lord draws near on all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. Because just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. But on Mount Zion, there will be those who escape, and it will be holy. And the house of Jacob will possess their possessions. Then the house of Jacob will be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame. But the house of Esau will be as stubble. They will set them on fire and consume them so that there will be no survivor of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Then those of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau, and those of the Shephelah, the Philistine plain, also possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. And the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad will possess the cities of the Negev. The deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau and the kingdom will be the Lord's. In Obadiah we see four realities of God's judgment. The first reality of God's judgment we see is that God's judgment is is inescapable. God's judgment is inescapable. We find in verse 1 that Obadiah sees a vision and he hears God sending a report to the nations. A report, an envoy saying, let us go against Edom for battle. God put out a hit on Edom. He put a price on her head. And so the nations are to respond. And we see God's purpose in verse 2. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. God promises that Edom, regardless of their lofty view of themselves, will be put down. But isn't that exactly what was supposed to happen? In Genesis 25, God said the older will serve the younger. In Romans chapter 9, interestingly, Paul uses Jacob and Esau as an illustration of the doctrine of election. And what's funny is the more you study Jacob and Esau, the more it makes sense. Because neither Jacob nor Esau deserved anything good from God, and yet God in his sovereign choice passed over Esau to give blessing to Jacob. But even in Romans 9, Paul repeats, The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Every time Edom defied Israel, they were not defying Israel's king. They were defying Israel's God who had designed that the older would serve the younger. Edom was made to serve Israel. That was their lot. 
but God keeps his promises all the way back in Genesis 12 to Abraham, and he says, the ones who curse your nation, I will curse. And so when Edom defies Israel, God defies Edom. But the question is, why was God so angry with them? What was their great sin? We find in verse 3, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. The great sin of Edom is the great sin of all time. It is pride. It is pride. The arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Did you know that pride was the first ever sin? You keep your eyes here. You look down at your Bibles at verses 3 and 4, and I'm going to read you a verse from Isaiah 14 and a verse from Ezekiel 28, and I want you to compare them. Isaiah 14, 13, But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. Ezekiel 28, 17, Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty, you corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor, I cast you to the ground. You see, the verses I just read don't describe the fall of a nation like Edom. They describe the fall of Satan himself. Pride, the very first sin in the heart of Satan. Kevin DeYoung did a sermon on Obadiah many years ago, which I borrowed a few things for this message. But he said something interesting about pride. You see, for us, pride is, is sometimes very easy to see in our lives. It's, it's the guy who talks about himself too much and the girl who stands in front of the mirror too long. Or maybe it's the guy who stands in front of the mirror too long and the girl talks about herself too much. I don't know. But Reverend DeYoung said this. He said, pride says one combination, some combination of these three things. I don't need God. I got where I am without God. Or I want to be God. How does that look in our lives? You see, the person who says, I don't need God, that's someone who abandons prayer and the study of God's word in the church because they don't need that. The one who says, I got where I am without God is defined by thanklessness and arrogance and discontentment. The person who says, I want to be God is full of self-pleasure and self-fulfillment. Or you take it the other way, I want to be God because I don't trust God and so it manifests itself in sinful anxiety and worry. Pride has all kinds of different manifestations, but do not be fooled. Pride is the first and the deadliest sin. Pride is the truest sin of God's enemies to set yourself up as if you can contend with the Most High. One commentator said that pride, like the Edomites had, is spiritual suicide. To set yourself up against God is death by pride. Edom was full of pride, and their pride told them all kinds of lies that they were going to be okay. They trusted in all kinds of things that would not save them. The first thing that they trusted in that wouldn't save them is their position. Just so you know, if you are not one of God's people, your position won't save you in the day of judgment. It says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you, verse 3, you who live in the clefts of the rock and the loftiness of your dwelling places... You see, Edom lived in a mountainous region, and they learned to build their villages up in these craggy cliffs that were sometimes between 4,000 and 5,500 feet high. They could defeat much larger armies because no one could attack them. Their fortresses were impregnable. But look at verse 4, because sometimes God asks questions in the scripture and he doesn't give us an answer. He gives us an assumed answer, an implied answer. But here, I'm thankful that God is very clear. He says, who will bring you down? Verse 4, I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Edom says, no one can touch us. And God says, pick me. I will bring you down. Their position would not save them. One commentator said, like the eagle, Edom felt secure, but Obadiah's God had no fear of heights. I will bring you down. So the question is, if you are an enemy of God, do you know that your position in life will not save you? 
But even if you are one of God's people, how easy is it for us to abandon trusting in our Father God and trust in our own position? And how far along we are in school or our career or how big of a family we have or even the neighborhood we live in, our positions will not save us. Secondly, we see that our resources won't save us either. If thieves, came, if thieves came to you, if robbers by night, oh, how you will be ruined. I want you to imagine for a second if you went home after church and found out that your house had been robbed. Imagine what that would look like. You, surely there would be things scattered around, the, the door would be open and so on. Maybe things were broken. But presumably, your fridge is probably still there unless they were very thorough. Your shelves bolted to the walls are probably still there. The couch that even you don't want is probably still there. Okay? But now imagine, what if you moved out of your house? You put everything on a truck and you move to a different house. Now imagine what that room would look like. Completely empty. God tells Edom that when I am done with you, it will not be as if some two-bit thief came in and took some things. It will be as if you never existed. It will be completely ransacked. Even the thieves would leave when they had enough, but I will search out your hidden treasures, God says. How easy is it for us to rely on our resources, on our bank accounts and our insurance packages and our retirement portfolios? Don't. God tells Edom, your relationships won't save you. Verse 7 says, the men at peace with you will deceive you and overpower you. It's funny because the word deceive is the same one back earlier in verse 3 and uh, verse 2 where it says, the arrogance of your heart has deceived you. Not only is their pride deceiving them, now it is their allies. God tells them they won't be attacked by someone who is a known enemy. They will be attacked by an ally. So the question for us is, are we idolizing relationships in our lives thinking that that is what will satisfy us? Is your greatest desire in this life that he would finally call you, that she would like you back, that you would be dating or engaged or married or that you would have children or that you would have grandchildren or that your husband would be more sensitive or that your wife would talk less? Are the relationships in your life the thing that you care about the most? Because the relationships in your life will not save you. Maybe it's, it's even outside of personal relationships and it's corporate. You wish that your boss would finally listen to you and if he would, your career would really take off. And if you could just network with this group of people, you could start to land those big ticket clients. The relationships you have in this life are important and you should value them. But they will not save you in the day of judgment. God says to Edom, your wisdom won't save you. Obadiah 8. Will I not on that day destroy wise men from Edom and understanding from the mountain of Esau? Edom prided themselves on knowledge and wisdom. They were on a major trade route. They gleaned education from Arabia, from the south, from India to the east, from Europe to the north. They considered themselves philosophers. And God tells Edom, your wisdom won't save you. Job 5.12 says, God frustrates the plotting of the shrewd so that their hands cannot attain success. God wasn't impressed with the wisdom of Edom. And frankly, God isn't impressed with your wisdom either. And I know, your freshman English teacher said you were really going places. <laughs> we cannot trust in our own wisdom Number five, God tells Edom their skills won't save them. Verse nine, then your mighty men will be dismayed, O Teman, so that everyone may be cut off from the mountain of Esau by slaughter. Teman was one of the capital cities of Edom, named after Esau's grandson. The Edomites were proud of their military strength, their might and skill. They were experts in guerrilla warfare because they had small bands uh, that could go down and defeat much larger armies because they knew the terrain. And so they relied on the skill of their warriors. But Matthew Henry comments that it is vain to depend upon mighty men for our protection if we have not an almighty God for us. 
and much less if we have an almighty God against us. Edom's soldiers would do nothing against the almighty God. So the question for you and me is, are you relying on your own talents and skills and strength to save you from God or even to save you apart from God? Are we relying on the own, our own talents that God has given us to work with and to do with, but are we using them for our own benefit and not for the honor of our Lord? We cannot trust in our skills. You see, God's judgment is inescapable. It is inevitable, it is sure, and nothing that you have or can do will save you from God. Only God can do that. The second thing we find is that God's judgment is justified. God's judgment is justified. Why was God judging these people? Well, he had good reason. First, we see that they attack God's people. Edom attacked God's people. In verse 10, it says, because of violence to your brother Jacob, verse 14 says, do not stand at the fork of the road to cut down their fugitives. Basically, what happened was this. As Babylon, with a much larger army, besieged Jerusalem and attacked it, anyone who could get away would run away from Jerusalem, and Edomites would stand at the crossroads and the escape routes, and they would cut down men, women, and children who were fleeing from the carnage of Jerusalem. How wicked and cowardly and evil are these people. And God says, I will judge you for this. When they should have come to Jacob's aid, to the aid of their brother, instead they waited for Babylon to get in the first hit, and they kicked Jacob while they were down. And it says the ones that they didn't kill immediately, they would gather up and they would sell back to Babylon. It says, do not imprison their survivors. Verse 10 tells us, God says, you will be covered with shame. Your guilt is over you like a sheet. You will never be able to get away with this. One commentator says, no mountain is high enough, no fortress is strong enough, no military force is large enough, and no hiding place is dark enough to secure such an enemy from the judgment of God. Please know that if you attack God's people, God returns the favor. God is justified in his judgment because they attacked his people. Secondly, they approved of attacks on God's people. Obadiah 11, on the day that you stood aloof, you stood aloof, you stood opposed, you didn't come to the aid of your brethren, instead you stood away and watched. But not only did they approve of attacks on God's people, they even enjoyed attacks on God's people. They attack God's people, they approve of attacks on God's people, and third, they enjoy the attacks on God's people. Obadiah 12 and 13, do not gloat over your brother's day. Do not rejoice over the sons of Judah. Do not boast in the day of their distress. You see, to gloat is to look at with approval. Yes, that's the right thing that should happen. To rejoice is to be glad in that. Yes, that's right. That's good. I like that. To boast is to actually use the misfortune of other for our own benefit. Edom benefited from the destruction of God's people. And God says, I will judge you for this. Can I take a pause for a couple applications for us? Let's take one from each side. Put ourselves in the place of Judah. If we are the people of God, the Bible tells us to expect persecution and insult and harm from the world. That is our lot because we have a much greater hope to come. We should not expect to be liked by the world. But from the other side, put ourselves in the shoes of Edom. Did you know that God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, much less the death of the righteous? We, as Christians, can never, we have no excuse to delight in anyone's misfortune, no matter who they are. Can I encourage you, exhort you, to be very careful how we think, even when pagan people come to disaster. Even when we see evil people, enemies of God, come under disaster, we cannot rejoice in their calamity. 
Ezekiel 33, 11, God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Proverbs 17, 5 says, he who rejoices at calamity will not go unpunished. We cannot rejoice in the death of the wicked, but we desire for them to repent and live. That is the heart of God. God's judgment is inescapable. God's judgment is justified. And third, we see that God's judgment is complete. God's judgment is complete. Verse 15 says, The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. The word day here is used over ten times. You saw it in the cadence. The day of their disaster, the day of their distress, the day of their disaster. Because God is calling attention to Edom that you need to remember that day. The day of Jerusalem. The day that sealed your fate when you attacked God's people. But you'll notice that it uses the phrase, the day of the Lord. And uh, if you've heard my pastor at all, you might have heard him say, the day of the Lord is a unique time of God's judgment on a certain people. If we were being specific, we would say the day of the Lord will come at the end of the age when God's judgment will come on the whole earth at once. But there is also these temporal day of the Lord's. And so this one is for Edom, their judgment day, if you will. But you'll notice as we go through the last several verses of Obadiah, there's a little bit of a blur in timing here. We're going to talk about some things that are historical that happened to Edom, but we're also going to see some things that are prophetic that will come to happen at the end of the age. But regardless, we see that God is bringing judgment on this people. His judgment here, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord draws near on all the nations. God's judgment is complete first. It is impartial. Verse 15, as you have done, it will be done to you. Your dealings will return on your own head. That word dealings is literally recompense. That what is rightly owed. Edom worked, they earned wages, and their wages was God's judgment on them. The dealings would return on their own head. You see, our God is a God of perfect impartiality. Ephesians 6, 9 says there is no partiality with him. And 1 Peter 1, 17 says our father is the one who impartially judges according to each one's work. Just so you know, our world talks and thinks a lot about justice, but our God is the only one who is perfectly just. Our God is perfectly impartial. And the world wants to characterize our God as being harsh and intolerant and unforgiving, but the reality is that our God is perfectly impartial. God's judgment is complete in that it is impartial, but God's judgment is also complete in that it is not partial. <laughs> you see, partial has two definitions in English, and only one of them has a negative form, which is really frustrating for me. But here we are. God's judgment is not partial. That is, it is exhaustive. Obadiah 16, But just as you drank on my holy mountain, all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and swallow and become as if they had never existed. The Old Testament often views God's wrath as someone drinking their judgment. Like in Job, 20, Job 21, 20, let him drink of the wrath of the Almighty. Apparently, when Edom came in to Jerusalem after Babylon had destroyed it, they had a large drinking party on Zion, the hill of God. And God tells them, when it comes time for your judgment, you will drink. But you will not drink anything you will enjoy. You will drink the cup of my wrath. He says, you will drink until you do not exist. Interestingly, about a couple, 200 years after the incident that we're talking about today, Edom left their flank exposed to attack Judah. And so another people group came in and took Edom from them. They moved into southern Israel and became known instead of Edom as the Edomians, which produced such wonderful people as Herod the Great. After 70 AD, when Rome came and sacked Jerusalem for a second time, completely destroyed it, there is almost no historical or archaeological evidence of Edom at all. In fact, for many years, liberal scholars used Edom as a reason to discredit the Bible because they said Edom is a made-up mythical people. There is no evidence they existed. 
And we say, actually, that's exactly what the Bible says. God told them that when he was done, it would be as if they never existed. It says, the house of Jacob will be a fire and the house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau will be as stubble. God will completely consume and devour his enemies. It says, there will be no survivor in the house of Esau. You see, there were survivors from Jerusalem. They tried to run away, and Edom killed them and imprisoned them. But God says, you won't even get the chance to be a survivor. I will judge you completely. Can we just stop for a moment and take stock of the fact that we are thankful that we serve a God who is impartial and exhaustive? Because if God is not impartial, that means his standard could change. And if his standard could change, then maybe someday you aren't saved by the blood of Christ anymore and you are still in your sins. But God is perfectly impartial, and so his standard doesn't change, and so we are confident in our salvation because we are confident in the character of God. We are also thankful for a God whose justice and judgment is complete and exhaustive because God will not leave a wrong unpunished. We can trust our God that even if it looks like the world is out of control now, he will bring it all to justice. We just have to be patient. Now you notice that the first 18 verses of this letter was a condemnation of an enemy people. But the letter never got to Edom. It never went there. It was an open letter. And it was written for the sake of Judah, God's people. But the question is, why would Judah need to know about the condemnation of Edom? And that brings us to our fourth reality of God's judgment, and that is that God's judgment is for the sake of his people. God's judgment is for the sake of his people. You see, guys, God's judgment is always for the sake of his own glory. God's judgment is always for the sake of his own great name. God's justice is also always the result of his perfect righteous character. But just as much, the scripture tells us that God's judgment of his enemies is for the sake of the people that he loves. 2 Samuel 7.10 I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, nor will the wicked afflict them any more. Deuteronomy 1.30, Moses tells the people as they go into the promised land, the Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf. Isaiah 64.4 says that God is the one who acts in behalf of the one who waits for him. Joel 3.2 says that I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel. God for the sake of his people. So what benefit do God's people get? First, we see that they will escape judgment. When we come to the final day of the Lord, God's people will escape the judgment. There will be those on Mount Zion who will escape. Edom cut down those who tried to escape, but God's people will escape the judgment. Secondly, it says that they will be made holy. There will be those who escape and it will be holy. You see, God's people will be set apart for his own purposes, fit for eternity. Matthew Henry says, There shall be the Holy Spirit, the holy ordinances, the holy Jesus, and a select remnant of holy souls, in whom and among whom the holy God will delight to dwell. When we come to the end, God's people will escape the judgment and they will be holy. Isaiah 4.3, it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. Third, we see that they will possess the possessions of their enemies. They will possess the possessions of their enemies. I asked the guys to show you a map, and I just want to talk through a couple of these as they, they come up. It says that those who are of the Negev will possess the mountain of Esau. It says that those of the Shephelah will go down to the Philistine plain. It says those possess, possess the territory of Ephraim and the territory of Samaria. 
It says, Benjamin will possess Gilead. It says, the exiles of this host of the sons of Israel who are among the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, way up on the coast, they will possess the southern region. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad, we don't even know where that is, maybe as far as Europe, they will possess the cities of the Negev. Now look at that and notice something. It's almost like it's the whole nation. It's almost like God's land promises to his people in the Old Testament. It's almost like God is going to keep his promises to give his people the land that he's promised. They will possess the possessions of their enemies. God fulfilling his promises to his people. But we also see, number four, that they will rule. Obadiah 21, the deliverers will ascend Mount Zion to judge the mountain of Esau. At the end, those whom God raises up to lead his people will rule over the nations. They will be given rule over the people. We hear about that in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says the saints will judge the world. And Revelation 20 verse 4 where it says those who died will come to life and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years. But the fifth and the greatest benefit of being one of God's people is that for the sake of the judgment We will escape and we will be with God. God's people will be with him. It says the kingdom will be the Lord's. The kingdom will be the Lord's. You see, the next event on God's calendar is the rapture of his church. When Jesus Christ will return to the sky and snatch up those who are truly his We read about that in John 14 and 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15, that God will return, Christ will return for his people. That event will set off a a series of events, a seven-year period of judgment where God pours out his wrath on the creation as he systematically uncreates his creation, destroying different pieces of it. At the end of those seven years, Revelation 19 tells us that Jesus Christ himself will return with the armies of heaven, riding a white war horse in a robe dipped in the blood of his enemies. And he doesn't come for the sake of salvation. He comes to rule with a rod of iron and to judge the world. And then he will set up his kingdom on earth, a literal thousand-year kingdom that we read about in Revelation 20. And he will be the perfect king of the world. At the end of the thousand years, he will release Satan and his enemies, and he will judge them eternally by casting them into the lake of fire for everlasting torment and judgment. And then it says God will bring about the new heavens and the new earth, a dazzling, perfect, splendorous place, fit for eternity, where we will live forever with God, a kingdom where righteousness is at home, Second Peter 3 says, and Hebrews 12 says, it is a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That is the kingdom that we long for. Listen to what the scripture says about whose kingdom it really is. Psalm twenty-two twenty-eight: for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Psalm 47, 7 to 8. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. Isaiah 24, 23. Then the moon will be abashed and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem. And his glory will be before his elders. Daniel 7, 13 and 14. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Micah 4, 7, I will make the lame a remnant and the outcast a strong nation and the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from now on and forever. Zechariah 14, 9, and the Lord will be king over all the earth in that day. The Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. Luke 1, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. 
Revelation 11:15. Then the seventh angel sounded. There was loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation 19:6. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Guys, we win. We win. Our God wins. The world feels out of control, but it is not. Listen to me very carefully. This world is perfectly in control. Our world is not at the mercy of of Democrats and COVID and the Taliban or even of the devil himself. Our world is ultimately at the mercy of one king over the universe, and it's the God of the Bible. His name is Yahweh. He is. The Bible Knowledge Commentary wraps up Obadiah like this. The short book of Obadiah presents a powerful message. It shows what happens to those who reject God's word and his grace, rebelling in foolish pride. During Edom's prosperity, many in Israel could have asked, why do the wicked prosper? But the voice of Obadiah comes thundering through the pages of the Old Testament, and it's echoed in the New. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Obadiah's words underscore the fact of God's justice. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. One who responds in obedience to the grace of God has everything to gain, but a person who spurns his grace and pride has everything to lose. You see, God will not allow the guilty to go unpunished. God is a God of perfect justice. His justice is inescapable. It is complete. It is justified, and it is for the sake of his own people. So can I ask you, implore you. You must not be one of God's enemies. God will win. God will bring perfect justice. And if you have not repented of your sins and put your whole faith in Jesus Christ, your day of judgment will come. But if you are one of God's people, he loves you. And he will defend you and protect you and he will fight for you to the end because God is for his people. There's a, a song by Andrew Peterson that I really love about God's justice. And it says, If the thief had come to plunder when the children were alone, if he ravaged every daughter and murdered every son, would not their father see this? Would not his anger burn? Would he not repay the tyrant in the day of his return? Await, await the day of his return. Because he will rise up in the end. And Obadiah tells us the kingdom will be the Lord's. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful that we who are your people do not need to trust in ourselves. We don't need to trust in our resources or our relationships or our positions. We need to trust in you alone. God, you alone are the holy king of all the universe, and your son alone is the one who is worthy to reign. We are so thankful that the kingdom will be the Lord's and that God's people will be with him forever. Thank you for all these things. In the name of our Lord Jesus, he who is worthy. Amen.